0: All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. My name is Andy. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Chapel. And um, I help oversee our community groups and discipleship groups. And so uh, if over the course of the next couple of weeks you're interested in getting connected, I'd love to help you do that. So find me after church and we'll talk about next steps. This morning, you can open up to Ephesians 6 if you have your Bible. We are nearing the end of a series on the armor of God. And the particular weapon that we're looking at this morning is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I want us to to think about this morning together. What is it that makes words powerful? What is it that makes words powerful to you? Uh, What is it that sometimes we find that words... Even Bible words can be seemingly ineffective, and yet other times they can be powerfully explosive and life-changing in our lives. Why does that happen? I have a, um, I have a grumpy neighbor who pretends like he likes me, but the truth is he doesn't like me at all, and we all know it. It's not it's not Piquette, although now I may have two neighbors who don't like me. I'm not sure. Um, and the reason that this neighbor doesn't like me, uh, he, he wants to like me because I'm a pastor, but he doesn't like me because the previous owner of our house had a green thumb and was an immaculate landscaper. And five years ago, when I moved on the scene, I brought with me four children, soccer balls, a dog, and between the dog poo and the soccer balls and my general incompetence, With gardening, we have ruined every shrub, every bush, and everything beautiful about that yard that my neighbor loved so much when the previous owner lived there. And so when I see him, he feigns a smile, you know, kind of looks at me, and he says all the right things. He says, how are the kids? How's the church? I see the dog is enjoying the backyard (laughs) quite well. Um, keep doing the Lord's work. And yet, <laughs> those words are largely powerless and meaningless for me. They give me no life at all. I wanted to contrast that story with another story that I heard this week about Jeff Rancourt. Jeff Rancourt is the, uh, the Braves outfielder who was in town in Carrollton this past week speaking to faculty and staff at Carrollton High School. And he told this story about his dad and his relationship with his dad, his hero, and this mentor for him throughout his life. And he said that his dad was a really, really busy man, superintendent of schools up in Gwinnett. And so he couldn't make it to a lot of Jeff's games. But once Jeff made it to the major leagues, his dad would sort of make this deal, this commitment that once a year... During the course of the big league season, he would find one of the away games, and he would fly out and surprise Jeff. Now, Jeff wouldn't know that he was going to be there. He wouldn't know which game it was going to be. But as Jeff would go up to the plate and step to the batter's box, suddenly, a voice from the crowd near the dugout would shout out, Francoeur, you suck! (laughs) And Jeff would smile, and he would step out of the box And he would feel loved and known and pursued by those words because of the relationship. And so what I want to suggest this morning is that you can have all the right words, but words only have power because of the one speaking them and because of the relationship that we have with that person. Are God's words pointing you to Jesus? Paul starts this section of Ephesians this way be strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength and then he goes on to say put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers the authorities the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that's the context then verse 13 therefore with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, as we were reading that, one thing I want to just point out to begin with is the urgency of that passage. Did you pick up on it? Well, if you think about Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians, what Paul has essentially done is gone on and on about the beauty of Christ And God's intention to reconcile the world to him through Christ. There's nothing that he says in there about do this, do that. But then as we get into chapter four, Paul starts to begin a call to action. He introduces language of imperative mixed with gospel vision and indicatives. And so while he's cruising through chapters four, five, and six, he's starting to say, do this, live this way, speak this way, sing to one another all in the context of the vision of the gospel. But as we get into these last verses in chapter 6, there's no more indicatives. There's no more explanation. It is rapid fire, do this, do this, do this. Why? Because there's a sense of urgency about the way that we're called to ministry, to live in the world. And part of what he's done, I think, is really give us a, a big vision for what all of life in the kingdom is meant to look like that we spend long moments gazing at the beauty of Christ and then that moves us into an urgent call to mission. And so is that sense of urgency, are you wrestling with it to any degree? I want you to think about if you were to walk into an operating room where there was a patient in cardiac arrest, what would you expect to be hearing from the lead surgeon? Not a lot of explanation, not a lot of like, Hey, let me explain what we're about to do. It would simply be directives and commands. Hey, give me that catheter. We need blood thinner. Okay, what are the vitals? Give me the vitals. You wouldn't expect to hear any of the technicians or other doctors saying, can we just talk about that for a minute? What, What do you, no. Because the urgency of that situation is consistent with the directives that he is giving. And this is what Paul is saying to us right here in the text. The church of Jesus Christ is on the battlefield. Are you in the mission? Do you have a sense of that as we talk about these weapons of warfare? Because if you don't, they won't make any sense to you at all. They won't land on us at all. John Piper says this, most people do not believe this. In other words, that we're in war. There is a peacetime casualness in the church, a casualness about spiritual things. There's No bombs falling in their lives, no bullets whizzing overhead, no mines to be avoided, no roars on the horizon. It's all well in America, the Disneyland of the universe. So why pray? I mean, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they try to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom by which they ring up the maid to bring in another pillow. It's made for tanks. It's made for trenches. It's made for war. And so it won't work when you install it in your yacht. It won't work at the lake cabin. But what have millions of Americans done? They've stopped believing in the war. Life is peace. It's not war. There's no urgency. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. No strategic planning. Just easy peacetime prosperity. So of course, Piper here is talking about prayer. But The reality is, he's really talking about all these different weapons that Paul enlists. And yes, of course we're instructed to pray for things that matter to us on all occasions, about all things. And so we we can pray for our children and their grades and for broken air conditioners like I have in my house right now when they go out. We should pray. It's right. But what he's saying is, if what is most central to your heart is that your life would be about your personal comfort then you would have to expect that these, mission, these weapons of warfare would be ill-suited for domestic comfort, for your live, trying to live your best life now. And so I'm saying that to you this morning because I need to say it to myself as a check on my heart to say, Lord, as I walk into your presence this morning and as I put myself back under your word Are you speaking to me? Is my life reflecting any sort of urgency, any sort of reprioritization of my time and my resources and my schedule because of the magnitude of this war that you are describing in Ephesians? God, check my idolatry and my materialism and remind me of where life is to be really found, in Christ And in his word. And so I have a prayer for us this morning. It's what I've been praying for us all week that when we hear tough words, that they would actually drive us to Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus has tough words and a bunch of disciples leave. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, How about you? Do you want to leave too? And they say collectively, what I long for our church to say, to whom would we go? Where else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And so let that be our prayer this morning as we prepare to hear from God's word. Pray with me. Oh Lord God, we are desperate people who are easily distracted and so we long for your word to be declared into our hearts again powerfully and yet we long to not hear from your words Go mow your grass. What we want to hear instead is even when your words are tough, that you love us, that we're known and pursued. God, when those words become our words, when we hear the gospel that way, then our words become powerful as well. And so help us to see that this morning through the power of your word. We love you and we need you. We need your spirit. Open our hearts again to the wonder of the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what is the sword? We're going to talk about what is the sword, how do we use it? And the first thing I want you to notice is that in this list of weapons, it's the only one that's used for offensive purposes. All the other pieces of armor, helmet and breastplate, they're defensive in nature, but the one piece of armor in which we can attack the enemy and inflict damage or push the enemy back is the sword. And the word for sword in the Greek is makaira. It's a small dagger. It's not a large sword. It's no more than 24 inches long. If you're using it, it means that you have to be right in front of your enemy. You're on the front lines. You are eyeball to eyeball with the enemy. There's uh, Russell Crowe, a highly trained Roman soldier saying, hey, I got one weapon, but I'm lethal with it. So come at me. I don't even need a shield. And that's what the Machairah was all about, this dagger. You're looking at your enemy and you're able to easily maneuver and hit him in the most vulnerable places. And so the author of Hebrews draws on this imagery as well. He tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to penetrate even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is a spiritually powerful weapon in the sense that for the even the most closed-off person spiritually, it can surface their heart. It can bear them in front of God, and it can reveal their need for grace. At the very same time, it's convicting us. It's also healing us and inspiring hope. It's double-edged, a living and active sword. But here's something else. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so as we've talked about already in this series, so much of the source material for Ephesians chapter 6 comes from the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we have a description of the coming Messiah. And it says that the spirit of the Lord would rest upon him and that he has this weapon capable of defeating a powerful enemy. And what is the weapon? It's something coming out of his mouth to slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. In Revelation 19, it says, this king of kings will ride on a white horse and out of his mouth will come a sharp sword. So what is this weapon, these things coming out of Jesus' mouth? What's incredible to me is in Isaiah 42, it says that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. He doesn't need to shout. He doesn't need to cry aloud in the streets or raise his voice. The words of the Messiah are powerful, even when they're quiet words, because they are spirit-filled words, and they are utterly sufficient. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. How creative, creatively powerful these words are. In Ezekiel 37, we hear that God tells the prophet to say to a pile of dead bones, "'Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord "'and I will make spirit breath enter you "'and you will come to life.'" Isn't that amazing? That where there's deadness, God brings new life through his word. Where things don't exist, all of a sudden they exist. In Psalm 29, it says, "'The voice of the Lord is over the waters. "'The voice of the Lord is powerful and majestic. "'The voice breaks the cedars. "'The voice of the Lord twists the oaks "'and strips the forest bare.'" And in his temple, all cry, glory. This is the word of the Lord. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, what we hear about him being proclaimed in John is he is called the word of God. So that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so when Jesus commissioned by the father and empowered by the spirit speaks, things that did not exist come into existence. Do you have that kind of power? And things that are broken are healed and darkness is pushed back and things that were dead come back to life. No wonder Psalm 29 says that when the voice of the Lord goes out, all in his temple cry, glory. And so where do we receive, encounter, and access spirit-empowered words? Well, Peter says, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, all of which point to Jesus and testify to Jesus and are fulfilled in Jesus. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, I want you to know that these words we shared with you are not cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then he said, When we heard this voice, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have something more sure. He says, Know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For it never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He is saying that we have access to spirit-inspired words in the Word of God, access to encounter and receive the very Word of God. He goes on to say in 2nd, Paul goes on to say in 2nd Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so God's word is no marginal provision for his people who are engaged in battle. It's more than sufficient. That's the word. So let's kind of take what we've said and tie it together, try to summarize some of what we said. You only need one weapon to attack with, and that weapon is more than enough. And that's because the weapon that you have is the word of God. Words that are inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. A grenade is only ineffective so long as the pin is still in the grenade. But if you pull the pin, it is armed and active and empowered. The words that we have in the Word of God are activated and armed by the Spirit, making them living and active. And that's the weapon that you've been given. It's more than enough. And the weapon that we've been given can only be used in close proximity, on the front lines, face to face. For the sword to be able to do the work, it means that you have to be in the life of other people. It means that you have to be in community, in relationship, in close proximity with others on a continual basis. Are you? It means that you're spending time with people who are hurting and lonely, and perhaps held captive by a spiritual enemy. People who don't know Jesus. Or it could mean that you're spending intentional time with people who need to believe the gospel again as you share spirit-empowered truth and testimony with them. And what this also means is that the gospel transformation, the transformation of the gospel is not up to you. The word of God does the work of God through the spirit of God in the people of God. That's the sword that you are charged to take up and to wield, to swing and to learn to use correctly. It is powerful and alive. Do you want to learn how to use it? Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. How do we learn to use the sword? You know, anytime that you have a powerful weapon, you're going to need some practice and a healthy respect for what you have in your hand. You know, if you leave the sword on your shelf and you don't want to spend any time with it, don't think you're going to be effective with it when the enemy comes at you and suggests that your marriage sucks and that you deserve better and maybe you should just leave. And maybe the the word isn't going to be all that effective when you hear church isn't a big deal. Why go? Why go? you got to work tomorrow. That's what Sunday's for. It's for rest. Stay home. If you're not practicing how to wield this, you'll have no idea how to use it in battle, or worse, the enemy will use it against you. You know, the greatest sword fight in modern times (laughs) is right there on your screen. It comes to us courtesy of the Princess Bride, It's this epic scene, it only takes a few minutes to watch, but did you know it took months to produce it? It looks pretty easy when you watch it. The actor who plays Wesley, the hero of the movie, his name is Cary Elwes, when he read the script for this, he thought, I can do that, no big deal. In hindsight, he said, I was dead wrong. I have never physically worked and been as disciplined in preparing for that as anything in my entire life. Not only did I have to learn the steps, but my muscles had to be trained and and like I had to grow new muscles just to be able to make these moves with any kind of proficiency. That sequence is three minutes long when you watch it on TV. It took him three months to work on the moves. He could only do five moves at a time, hours upon hours, days after days, a whole week of filming this one scene. And so here's the reality. Fighting with a sword looks pretty easy, but it actually takes incredible discipline and hard work. And yet that work and that time that you would put into it is absolutely essential if we're gonna be properly equipped for the kingdom work that God has for us. And that's because the sword of the spirit as a weapon is meant to be used declaratively, proclamationally. The word in this passage for The word of God is not the word we usually read in the New Testament, logos, the written word. Instead, the word here is rhema. And rhema, whenever it's used in the New Testament, is a declarative word. It's the word of God proclaimed. It's it's the word taught and sung and testified to and preached its spoken words. That's rhema. Now, what does that mean when we think about that? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we simply say biblical words and phrases like we're Harry Potter, okay? Expecto Patrona. We're just trying to get the words right and then it will have its effect. Stupefy, you know, to, to ward off the enemy. We just say the words the right way. We're not witches and wizards and warlocks. Uh, there was this old Bible show. I remember um, it was a Bible cartoon when my kids were young. We'd get these different videos, and this one was called Bible Man. And Bible Man was like this animated cartoon character, a hero. And when these animated villains would come at him, his, uh, his, his, uh, his method of attack was simply to quote scripture. He'd say a verse, and then the enemy would melt or explode and be gone. That was Bible Man. Is that what? Is that what God really means for us? Like when he gives us the sword of the spirit that we just quote scripture? No. Listen, the word of God is powerful in so much as it brings us into an encounter with God himself. In so much as it works itself into my heart and draws out spirit-filled dependency and intimacy with God. What makes the word powerful is the Holy Spirit enlightening the eyes of our hearts and minds so that we see the gospel and are drawn into deeper fellowship with God. That's what makes the word powerful. When that happens in my life, the word of God then declared and proclaimed and sung and testified to is armed with explosive power. So I want us to try to think about that in the life of Jesus. You know, one of the, one of the um, probably stories that would come to mind right away for us when we think about Jesus defending himself with the sword of the Spirit is uh, when Satan comes and tempts him in the wilderness. And in that situation, on three occasions, Satan brings forward a very acute and strategic assault against Christ in a place where he thinks Jesus would be vulnerable, And what does Christ do? He meets each one of those assaults with the same weapon, the same weapon that we have, the Word of God. And so in Matthew chapter 4, this is the first one, it says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Is that Jesus just Bible-manning him right there? I don't think that's what he's doing. And I think if we look at the life of Christ, we know that's not the case. I want you to think about Jesus growing up. In Luke chapter 2, 40, it says that Jesus, this is when he's a little kid, grew strong. And he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Even here, he is dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit, and then in the next passage, Jesus wanders into the temple at 12 years old, and he's sitting at the feet of religious leaders, and he's engaging them with questions and asking them things. And Mary shows up, his mom's like, what are you doing here? And he says, don't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I have to be with my father. I live dependently, total dependence on him. And so his words drive me to dependence and intimacy with God. I'm feasting on them. I'm listening. I'm availing myself of every possible means so that I can grow in wisdom and have it impact my heart. And then it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. This is dependent delight through all the means of grace. You know, in Proverbs chapter 4, it's talking about wisdom. How do we get wisdom? It says, though it cost you all you have, get it. And listen to this. Lay hold of my words with your heart. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a whole man's body. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 is probably the first verse I ever memorized. What does it tell us about defending ourselves? How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So first... I have to listen to and avail myself of every possible means so that I can know and hear and be responding to God's Word. But then I need to bring it into my heart so that it brings about life change and power. In my heart is where I begin to experience intimacy with God, where I surrender idolatry and comfort and selfishness. And I say these words, though they convict They bring me to you, Lord Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 4. The enemy comes at him with this temptation, essentially telling him, why don't you live independently of your father? Live independently and do this on your own. And he says, what? No. What I have been feasting on and savoring and delighting in has always driven me right into intimacy with my Father. That's life for me. The words of life for me are the Father's words. I have intimacy with Him. And so here's Jesus pointing this this, uh, principle to us about how we are meant to engage the Word. It's Psalm 1. It's the picture of the fruitful tree. How do we become fruitful? Well, Psalm 1 tells us it's the man of God who meditates on God's word. Day and night, meditating day and night. I'm bringing it into my heart. I'm listening. I'm chewing on it. I'm savoring it. I'm finding delight in it. And it's driving me to Jesus. I'm putting my trust in it at a heart level. And when I'm doing that, I am forging wisdom and the potential for spirit-armed words to be declared against whatever attack that I'm facing. And so do you think that if you're experiencing lust as a temptation, that you can just sort of say out loud, abracadabra, blessed are the pure in spirit. They'll see, they shall see God. And that's going to work. Probably not. But if you think about those words, blessed are the pure in heart, And I've had to do this and let those words sink in and point me to the purity of Christ. When I look at those words and I meditate on them, sometimes I'll think about Melissa coming down the aisle in radiant white dress and I'll see the purity that I experienced on that day and I'll remember that, you know what? That's what Jesus' vision is for me. I am to be his bride. He has come to die for me, to make me pure, because he loves me. And when I begin to think about the love of Christ and the purity of Christ and how those words are moving me towards Christ, suddenly I have a different sort of attack that I can offer with spirit-empowered words. Are you carving out any time in your life and schedule to engage with God and His words like that. If you are too busy for God's word, then you're too busy. That's the only thing I can say. There, do we need to say anything else? If you're too busy for God's word, then you're too busy because you will be ill equipped for this battle. So sometimes we are using the words in a defensive posture, and sometimes we're using the words of God in an offensive posture to take ground for his kingdom, to see new territory, to share the gospel with other people, and to ask that God would take these things that sometimes so, sound so trite and make them powerful and alive and active. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I used the Tim Tebow verse a couple of weeks ago with somebody on my soccer. You know the Tim Tebow verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, we hear that sometimes as Christians. We think that's so cheesy. That will never work. And usually I wouldn't even think of it. I'd just be like, no way. Words, don't say that verse. Stay in here. They're gonna laugh at me. That's what he has written on his little eye patches you know, when he scores touchdowns. And yet, this, this parent on our soccer team asked me, to pray for their son who was going to play in a soccer tournament and they were worried that their son was not ready physically, that he was gonna be overwhelmed by the talent and he was gonna be crushed by that experience. And I, in that moment, could sort of sympathize because I had wrestled with something similar. I too have put too much stock in my kids being successful on the athletic field. I want them to do so good. I want them to be loved. I want them to be liked. I think this is the pathway to friendship. And yet what God has done for me is he said, hey, I want you to remember, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So when this parent said that to me, that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. I said, well, hey, uh, let, me, let me pray for you what, I need to, what I've been praying for myself. I have learned the secret of being content in any, in any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, and that actually I can find those things in Christ. And usually, what would sound trite and cheesy, for whatever reason, the Lord took it and struck her. And the reason I know it is because her shoulders slumped. She's like, that's so good. Andy, that's what I need. Oh, I need contentment. Oh, I need contentment. And I said, well... Let me t- tell you about how I've been finding that in just a couple minutes. That is how this begins to work. It's because I've taken those words, wrestled with them, and been driven to the beauty of Jesus that now that they are powerful and effective, and so I want to I just say this morning that this is such an awesome weapon that God has given us, and we have so much power. There's a scene in The Lion King that really captures this for me. The Lion King. You remember Simba and Nala, how they're tempted to go off into the elephant lands? They're not supposed to go there by themselves because that's where the evil hyenas live. And unbeknownst to them, as they move into the elephant land, they start to be surrounded by these wild hyenas. And the, it's a battle there that they're not really ready for, that they're not equipped for. And so Mufasa, the king, says, Don't go there. But they go there anyway, and they're in trouble really quick. And so the enemy finds them, surrounds them, and Simba, little baby cub Simba, tries to roar. But instead, what comes out of him is just this little squeak. Rawr, rawr. And the Whoopi Goldberg character, the hyena, she just starts laughing at him. She's mocking him. She's like, do it again, do it again. And Simba keeps trying, he's opening his mouth. Rawr, and yet, unbeknownst to him, and unbeknownst to all the hyenas, something's happened. Mufasa has entered the cave. So that the next time Simba opens his mouth, what everyone hears, what, what everyone sees is Simba's little squeak. But what comes out of his mouth is Mufasa's roar. And so when, when Simba opens his mouth, the king fills his lungs and there's this power and this roar. The hyenas see the little cub, but what they hear is the king. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that all of what we do as a community, and why so vital? It's so vital that we would hear the word of God declared and preached and taught, sung over one another testified to in our community groups, shared over coffee with your neighbor or co-worker, proclaimed to to one another. We open, we simply open our squeaky little boring mouths and sometimes the lion begins to roar. The king might just decide to fill our lungs with power. And so what I want to say this morning is that we can't manufacture that or fast track that. You can't just hop in, God's word tomorrow, and expect that kind of powerful life change to happen. But John chapter three says we can only receive what we've been given to us from heaven. And Edwards Jonathan Edwards says what we can do is lay ourselves in the way of allurement. God brings transformation. What we can do is set rhythms for ourselves and create the opportunity for that to happen through community life and rhythms of worship. What that means is I'm here on Sunday. I've got to be here on Sunday. I've got to make it a priority so that I can hear God's word declared and sung over me and testified to me and taught and preached. It means that on Saturday nights, you might pray for whoever's going to be up here, whether it's Andrew or Weber or whoever's filling this pulpit. God, fill them with the roar of your Holy Spirit. The the people teaching our kids back there right now, are you praying for them? that God would roar through them. It means that I'm in community. I found a group of people where I'm pointing one another, we're pointing one another to Jesus. In my personal life, I'm doing whatever it takes, like Proverbs chapter four says, to get the words of life inside of me. I'm reading it, I'm memorizing it, I'm giving time to it. That means for me, I've gotta turn my phone off, off. Did you know there's an off switch on your phone? It will actually turn off. The other cool thing you can do is when you go to bed, you could put your phone in another room with it off. And then in the morning when you get up, you're not quickly distracted by Wordle and emails and TikTok videos and whatever's popping up. But you set that aside and you turn it off and you're undistracted for some time with Jesus. I have to do this. There is no way that I can wield this sword of the Spirit correctly. With my phone on 24-7, are you even turning it off to be with Him? And so I want to spend some time on this um, this semester. One of the things we're going to do during our Sunday morning equipping hour when we get started um, in the fall is to look at this biblical idea of meditation. So on Sunday mornings, I want us to figure out how can I learn how to meditate well on God's word. Would you join me for that time? Would you put that as a priority in your schedule? Paul says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He says that to a church community. They're meant to do it together. And when they do, the king might just start to roar. So let's pray that he would do that through us. God, as we hear your words, may we not hear something like, go mow your lawn, but instead may we hear, you're loved, I'm pursuing you, I'm coming for you, and I'm gonna change you and redeem you. God, those are, those are words that bring me life. And so I pray that they would bring life uh, to this people, to my people, to this community, God, that what we might do as a church would be to declare the wonders of Jesus in big ways and small ways and to hear you thunder to fill our lungs and to make us roar. We need you to do it. We cannot do it apart from your spirit. And so we pray in your name. Amen.